Hi, I'm James Gardner, host of Your History, Your Story, a podcast for everybody who loves stories about interesting people and events told by those who uncovered them from within their own family trees. This, we hope, will inspire you to discover and celebrate your history and your story. In this episode of Your History, Your Story, we'll be speaking with author and college English professor Gretchen Weiss-Dubit. Gretchen was a previous guest on our show, along with her brother Carl and sister Christina. Together, they told the story of their grandfather, Dr. Carl Weiss Sr., who was accused of being the assassin of controversial Louisiana Senator Huey Long in 1935. During that interview, Gretchen and her siblings presented a case for their grandfather's innocence and also shared how that horrific event changed their family tree by forcing their grandmother to leave Louisiana with her young son, Carl Weiss Jr., to escape a hostile environment in their community. They also told how years later, their dad, who had settled in New York, eventually began visiting his relatives in Louisiana, a tradition that continued as his own family grew. In today's episode, Gretchen will talk about her new book, Under the Oak Tree, Stories of a Southern Family a collection of stories and memories from her annual spring visits to see her father's family in Opelousas, Louisiana. Gretchen, a native New Yorker who now lives in Colorado, will share memories of family reunions, outdoor play, crawfishing, horseback riding, and more. She'll tell of her special bond with her great-aunt Marie, who was a wonderful storyteller, a lively and generous host, and a living link to her Louisiana Cajun family's interesting and accomplished history. Gretchen will also discuss the family secrets that were not shared by Aunt Marie or other family members because of the painful and disruptive consequences of the family's involvement in a tragic incident that also affected American history. I'd now like to welcome Gretchen Weiss-Dubit to our show. Welcome, Gretchen. Thank you so much, James. I should actually say welcome back, Gretchen, because you were on our show back on, actually, it was season two, episode nine. Uh, The title of that podcast was Dr. Carl Weiss Sr., Assassin or Not. And it was a really fascinating time that we spent together talking about a really a tragic event that happened that involved a family member of yours. Can you tell us just a little bit about that? Yes. Um, We met the four of us. My brother, sister, and I were on the show with you. My father had just passed away. And so the story of his passing brought up the story really of what brought him through life, really. The story was um, my father died um, in 2019. He was 84 years old. And the story that had kind of followed him throughout his life was that of his father, who had been accused of assassinating Huey Long in 1935. And as a result of that um, supposed assassination, my father's life was turned upside down uh, as a three-month-old, and he was forced to leave. Um, He and his mother fled the country and moved to France. That was kind of the turning point for all of us not living in Louisiana and um, having this family name that was sort of um, vilified. 
really um, is still vilified because um, no one really knows the truth about what happened on September 8th, 1935. And um, nobody really knows exactly what happened. But in any case, my um, grandfather became a villain. Yeah. And we really sort of took it apart and discussed different things that were said and stories about witnesses who saw and heard things. It's really, I recommend people to go back and, and listen to it if they can. But I just wanted to ask you, Gretchen, so where did you actually grow up? So I grew up in New York and uh, on Long Island, which is where my father settled when he and his mother came back from France. Um, my father uh, went to medical school and uh, became an orthopedic surgeon and settled into the same home that his mother had fled to after uh, leaving first Louisiana, then France. Um, World War II had broken out and they had to leave, take the last boat out of France and come back to the States. So my grandmother settled in a little town on Long Island called Garden City. And that's where my father also settled and where my sister, brother and I were raised. Uh, Garden City, New York, Long Island. Um, so I lived there until I went off to college at 18. Okay, so you are a New Yorker. I am a New Yorker. Yes. yes Proud so. New Yorker. Although I've lived in Colorado now for 30 years. How did you come to move to Colorado? My husband and I met um, teaching skiing. I had just finished University of Vermont, and my husband had just finished um, at University of New Hampshire. And we were both taking a um, kind of a little hiatus from life for a while. And we both went to work, not knowing each other, at a ski area. So he was a ski patroller and I was a lift operator and I would load him on the lift. So um, we started dating. And um, a year and a half later, we got married very young. We got married young. And he said, I'd like to move back to this little town in Colorado where I went to camp. So he went to camp here in Durango, Colorado when he was 13. And um, we packed up everything we had and moved west and stopped in Durango. And we've been here for 30 years. And what are you doing now? So I teach. Um, I am a visiting instructor at a small liberal arts college called Fort Lewis College here in Durango. And my husband and I, another one of my, my husband's fantasies was not just moving to Colorado, but also um, when he was growing up, his brother and sister were very allergic to animals. And so he could never have a dog. So when we got married and moved west, he started collecting dogs. And before we knew it, um, we now have a kennel of 30 sled dogs. So he decided to start collecting and not stop because he was so tormented by not being able to have a dog when he was growing up. So we run a dog sled business called the Durango Dog Ranch. And many of the people who come dog sledding here are from Louisiana because this is this kind of a stopping spot, you know, or in the southwest and so many of them come here and they say, oh, I say, oh, I'm from, from Louisiana. My family all lives in Louisiana. And they look at me, you know, like, oh, okay, from Louisiana. And then I tell them the story of my grandfather. I say, have you ever heard of Huey Long? And they all look at me like, of course, I've heard of Huey Long. I'm from Louisiana. Um, all the roads are named after Huey Long. There's bridges, there's schools. I mean, his name is everywhere. So um, I then have to explain to them that my grandfather was accused of assassinating Huey Long. And most of the time they hear it and go, uh-huh, that's nice. And then they stop for a second and they look over at me and realize that I'm telling, a, you know, a really big part of history. And um, it's the quizzical. I mean, the, the, it's amazing how people are, just cannot grasp. So then I wind up telling the story about how 
I grew up in New York because my father left Louisiana at three months old as a result of this very high profile political assassination. So it's always such an amazing thing for them to look at me in our, you know, our snow-capped little spot on in La Plata Canyon and realize that this is, and what it, what's really resulted from this has made me realize that where I am in life is a direct result of the choices other people made. And I, you know, had this shooting not occurred in the Capitol on the night of uh, September 8th, things would be very different for me. I would probably still be living in Louisiana. So I've often pondered, you know, the choices that people make have these profound effects on the, you know, the progeny, the offspring of a family. And that was certainly the case with the Weiss family, my father and his family. What an interesting path. There's so many, you know, decisions that people make, uh, circumstances that occur that actually change our directions in life, don't they? And that's kind of the first couple lines in my book are about the trajectory that how these choices really kind of, you know, can deviate or, um, you know, they can make a grand, uh, gr have a grand effect or they can have an effect that's uh, kind of lives with you forever. Infamy is not the same as fame. I write that I always thought that people involved in history making events were automatically rich and famous, you know, and. When I tell the story of uh, Huey Long, I have a friend who's a history teacher at Durango High School, and she loves to tell the story because she says, this is a friend of mine. You know, when she gets to the chapter about, you know, American history in the 1930s, she, you know, she can say like, oh, my friend's fun. You know, she, she's amazed by it. But, um, you know, other than historians, people who teach history, people who, you know, have a grasp of Louisiana history. Louisianans are very proud of their history. So um, they tell and retell and tell the stories of over and over. Whereas, you know, a New Yorker doesn't necessarily have a, um, a kind of a special story, but it's amazing how some places in the South have these really, I don't know, these stories that they really hang on to. And this story of Huey Long has been one that has been carried, you know, strung out throughout the years. Uh, they still tell it. Yes. And talking about stories now, you mentioned your book. Uh, when we spoke, uh, it may have been a pre-call that we did when we, we did the interview with your brother uh, and sister. You had mentioned that you were writing a book. And I, I remembered that. And then I thought to myself, what is that book going to be about? And I think you even alluded to the fact that it was going to be stories from your childhood memories down in Opelousas, Louisiana. And I thought to myself, I, I hope that I'll find out about that book so that I can circle back and speak with Gretchen again. And sure enough, I saw on, I think it was Facebook that you had published the book, Under the Oak Tree, Stories of a Southern Family. And you were able to send me a copy of the book and I devoured it and I thoroughly enjoyed it. But before we start talking about your book, how old were you, Gretchen, when you found out about your grandfather's part in history? I think I remember almost exactly where I was. Um, I was 12. My brother and sister are older. I'm the youngest. So my brother was probably 13 at the time, and my sister was 15. And I think at that point, my sister had written a paper about Huey Long, and they were kind of trying to keep it from me because... It, this this story was hush, hush, hush throughout our entire lives. 
So we had been going to Louisiana every year for my entire life. And it wasn't until I was about 12 years old that I realized that there was a very um, important event that happened and realized that this historical event was bigger than we were. Um, we used to go down to Louisiana and have our picture taken, and lots of people did. But our picture, you know, there was this rock right in front of the um, the newspaper, and when people came to town, they would take their picture. But when we came to town and they took our picture, people would um, it'd be on the front cover, you know, of the paper. So and so, you know, Carl Weiss and his children have come to town, and my aunt Marie would show up with us, and people would talk in hushed tones, and she'd say, "Shh, they don't know." And so it all kind of came back to me after, you know, going for so many years that I realized, wow, these people all know who we are. And I didn't know why or what or who. I didn't know the story. It wasn't until we were much older that we put it all together, that we were a very big or our grandfather was a very big part of American history. That is very interesting. Uh, as I read the book and read through the book, the uh, I think you may even have referred to it as the untold story about what happened to your grandfather and why your grandmother had to leave with your three-month-old dad or when your dad was uh, very young, I should say. Yeah, he wasn't, yes. He wasn't three-month-old. He was a little bit he older. He was a little older, right. He took off, and there's reasons for that is because of this notoriety that was really unwelcomed. But that sort of interweaves itself through the book as the untold secret or the untold story. Yet the book is really a lot of stories and excellent stories about these visits down to Louisiana and what it meant to you as kids. But let's start by, if you could just give a, just a very basic overview of what the book was about. And then I'm going to ask you some specifics. So the book is really, um, I, I wrote this book for about 20 years and I started to write this book when I realized that what we had was so unique and every year, as I said, we'd go down to Louisiana for a week. And this book is the culmination of all of the stories and things and events and people who were very unusual. They were rare. It was a rare family. And part of the uh, rarity of this family was this background story that everybody held close and held quietly, you know, within themselves. But we used to sit and tell stories and um, they would all tell stories about each other. Everyone, you know, there was nothing held back. So this book starts with realizing that I had a story to tell that had historical, um, you know, a historical perspective. And then that I had this wonderful family, wonderful and unique, who kind of made just great fun of telling stories about what, what everyone did. And um, the central kind of person in the story is really my Aunt Marie. And what made her so unique is that she's actually my great aunt. And she was also my godmother. So I always felt a little special. But everybody in town knew Aunt Marie. And everybody called her Aunt Marie. She was just this larger than life person who everybody wanted to know, to have a piece of, to just be part of her life. And um, when she died, I realized I needed to put these stories down on paper. And Aunt Marie sounds like somebody I, I really wished I'd had her as one of my family members because she just sounded like she was a lot of fun. But I'm going to talk about her. But I wanted to talk about your dad. 
with these trips to Louisiana, how important were these trips to him? And what was it about him that brought so much attention on your family when you went down to visit? So we went every year at Easter. And um, my mother is a New Yorker or was a New Yorker. She also passed away about eight years ago. But um, she was a, you know, very New York, very kind of, you know, she was, uh, she knew who she was. She said what she wanted. She didn't hold back. So we'd all fly down. Originally, we used to fly down in my father's plane. He would be the pilot. My mother was the co-pilot. And the three kids would be in the back. I would get sick during every plane trip because I couldn't believe my parents were flying the plane. And um, so we would fly in later. Um, there was a plane crash that also happened, which is a story in this book as well, which was a really big part of our lives when the plane crash happened. Um, that changed, as I said in the book, changed the way we we went to Opelousas. So we'd go down and my father was really, it was kind of like the prodigal son, like he was coming home and they all felt like, oh my gosh, we get to, you know, when he'd left, it was a big, it was a big loss because you don't leave Louisiana. You know, everyone lives down the street and, you know, there's a lot of family ties. It's the South. So when we used to go back a week a year, it was like this lot of fanfare. It was, you know, Carl's coming, coming with his children, his family's coming and people would show up to eat at the midday meal because they all wanted to see us. They wanted to see Carl. He had moved to New York and become this great, you know, orthopedic surgeon, this great success. And they wanted to see him. They wanted to see, you know, what, what had become of him really. And of course we stayed at my aunt Marie's house because that was the family home. And my aunt Marie really became like a mother to my father. Not only did my father lose his father at three months old, but his mother died of colon, colon cancer um, when he was about 30. I hope I'm getting those dates right. So he really, um, he grew up, you know, as a single kid with a mother until he was about 30. And then she died very suddenly of colon cancer. So my great aunt Marie or aunt Marie really became like a mother to him and like a grandmother to us. So us showing up uh, around Easter time in Opelousas coming, you know, flying in in our private plane was, it was a big, <laughs> was a big event. I'm thinking sometimes kids, particularly when they get to be teenagers, they, oh, we got to go to some old aunt's house or whatever, but it wasn't like that for you, was it? So about a few months ago, right after my book was published, I got a letter from a friend of my mother who said, I just finished reading your book. And she said, I used to feel so sorry for you kids for having to spend your spring break in Opelousas. She said, we all used to say, oh my gosh, those poor kids, we're all going off to Disneyland and going off to our, you know, somewhere great for spring break to the beach. And they're flying to Opelousas. She said, I had no idea what Opelousas was to you. And I kept the letter because it was so amazing. She said, that is so amazing that you all loved this place so much. And we had no idea that there was a Disney World out there because Opelousas was our Disney World. We um, rode horses. We milked cows. We sat in the bosom of family and told stories. Um, there was no TV. So really, this was like there was this big family room where the door was always open. And every once in a while, you'd hear the screen door open and another person was walking in to come see us for this week. You know, if they could get their eyes on us, they felt like, OK, they're they're here, they're home, they're back. And um, again, as kids, we didn't realize how special this all was. But my father's uh, Southern accent would sneak back. My mother would kind of, you know, roll her eyes and go, oh, gosh, you know, he was like the, it was like the prodigal son had returned. 
And uh, it was really quite amazing. But it's taken me many years to realize what was happening there. Because as a child, it was just, you know, oh, doesn't everybody have an Aunt Marie? Yeah. Now tell me about Opelousas, Louisiana. What kind of a town is it? So Opelousas is a, oh gosh, I wish I could do the demographics. I really, I should. But Opelousas um, was just my Annie Da, who was my Aunt Marie's sister, used to say, oh, my whole family strung across Louisiana like a string of pearls because there'd be, you know, one family member in New Orleans and then you would move west. So Opelousas is due west. But it was really a very nondescript town. It was very country. Uh, the house where my great aunt Marie grew up was surrounded by soybean fields. A lot of um, it was a very small town with really not a lot of not a lot of fame, not a lot of fortune, just little tiny town. And Aunt Marie was really the belle of the town. She and her family lived in the same home. She died um, at her, well, she had to leave eventually. She had to leave about, I think she died six months later, basically after being taken from her home because she couldn't live there by herself anymore. This home was like the center of town. And there were, um, people used to talk about, you know, Aunt Marie and her brothers and sisters who live in the old house in the middle of town where every, all the other houses dotted up around it, but hers was still the plantation right in the middle of town. And after she died, actually, a historian bought the house and bought the picket fence that encircled the home, bought everything in it, and moved it to another location so that they could preserve that part of history. Oh, boy, is that fortunate when you think it could have been bulldozed and they could have put a, you know, a convenience store. And that was one of the one that was one of the things that almost happened. So rather than someone, you know, I think my father sold the house for a dollar. And I mean, the, you know, the velvet curtains and everything. And they just said, if you can move it and put it back together. Um, so it's somewhere. It's somewhere in, in Louisiana. I'm not sure where. What's interesting to me, though, is when you said about the reception you were getting, you were getting this amazing reception because the family down there was the family of your grandmother, your grandmother, who was married to Dr. Carl Sr., who was the accused assassin of Huey Long. That was your grandmother's family. They were treating you like, as you said, the prodigal son, that these are, this is just an amazing special event that this family's coming down. And yet when your grandmother left with your very young father, it was really to escape probably a lot of anger. They're almost like pariahs because of supposedly, you know, being the family of the assassin. So it's kind of an about face that the family was like embracing you and all the neighbors or, or the family members extended were there to sort of make a fuss of you. Like, welcome, we want you here. This is great. As opposed to running for your lives because everybody hates us, right? No, that's really true. And a lot of them, you know, um, had to accept the fact that after this assassination happened, that one of their own had been um, accused. And so it took many years for people to really realize like this was, you know, this was a great loss, a great you know, loss to the family. And it took a lot of years for them to come to, you know, come to terms with like, wow, this really disrupted um, what what was really, um, you know, the family, uh, a big family who grew up in Opelousas and really disrupted my Aunt Marie, who had to live with it for many, you know, all her life, really. She was probably more affected than anybody next to my father. And she was a history teacher. And we always used to laugh and say like, well, and I heard my cousins who were much older 
would tell the stories about how, oh yeah, Aunt Mari, she, my Aunt Mari, she skips over 1935. She tells her own version. And that was really true. She really told her own version because she knew that the history books were wrong. Yeah. Yeah. And she was there. I mean, she, she was in that family uh, as a, a young woman when that event happened back in 1935. But now let me focus on Aunt Marie, because I understand from your book that she loved to wear things red. She liked all things red, mm -hmm. very cheerful, bright color, that she was very hospitable, that she liked to drink a highball now, now and then, right? Mm -hmm. um, it sounds like she it was a lot about the food, making sure there's a lot of food out there. Take me through what would happen on a typical visit when you came marching onto Aunt Marie's property for the first time that season? So she was a school teacher. So she always found a few days to get off of school so she that she, so she could spend them with us. But um, she lived in this antebellum home with no air conditioning. Um, there were horses, there were cows, there were chickens. And I, you know, I grew up on Long Island, so we didn't know about any of these things. So it was almost like, um, you know, when we came, they kind of, you know, it was full-time farm. I mean, we just, we'd get up in the morning and everyone would be, um, there would be horses in the pasture. So we'd all go out and find our horses. We each had our own horse. And uh, my sister was a horse person, so she'd ride Tonto. There were four cousins because there were three of us, me, my brother, and my sister. And then my youngest cousin, Chris, he would get off school for the week to hang out with us. But his brothers were all much older, so they... Um, you know, they were off with girlfriends and in school and doing important things. But we would spend the week riding horses. And then in the at the mid uh, middle of the day, um, down in the south, and I don't know if this still happens, but I know it happened when we were there, down um, in the middle of the day is when they'd have their midday meal. So everything was, was um, very Cajun. And so I don't know, maybe when we weren't there, they'd eat tuna fish sandwiches. But when we were there, it was crawfish etouffee. And it was usually crawfish that we would catch because on the day before the crawfish etouffee, my cousin Ben um, would take us down to the um, rice paddies to um, fish for crawfish. So this was like, you know, we didn't think anything of it. We would throw on our dirty jeans and We'd go out into the um, into the rice paddy fields or whatever they're called. I can't. I don't know what they're actually called, but um, they were the um, the bayous, I suppose. And we would drag our nets and get as many crawfish as we possibly could for the next day's crawfish boil and for crawfish etouffee for the rest of the week. So everything was very Cajun. It was like we were in a different country. We were in a different world, and. Um, my mom would be cooking with Marie in the kitchen and uh, Marie wasn't really a cook. Let's get that straight. Marie would boil water and throw rice and then whoever else could really cook would, uh, you know, make the sauces. And But Marie loved to throw a party and she loved people. So um, she never shied away from having, you know, a dining room table full of people. I mean, you know, we'd have 12, 15, 20 people at the dining room table eating for the midday meal. Um, stories would just abound. Uh, there was just never no end. And, uh, usually a lot of embellishment as well as only Southerners can do. <laughs> it's funny. I'm, I've, I've got Irish, uh, background and I've, I've always told the Irish can, uh, you know, make up a good story. <laughs> if it doesn't exist, it can be made better for, for sure. Uh, there's some part in your book that you talk about, you mentioned it several times that you'd hear horns blowing and it'd be because relatives 
we're coming to visit. We're coming up the, I guess the the driveway or what have you, and blowing the horn to say, "Hey, we're here." You know, put another set out on the table. You know, it was the horn blowing uh, custom is just really <laughs> prominent, and we all used to. I mean, you would as soon as they came across the cattle guard. Uh, you'd hear the horn blowing and it would be this beep, 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 beep. And we thought nothing of it. And they'd beep all the way. It was a long driveway. <laughs> so <laughs> I mentioned in my book, it was kind of like an SOS. I called it a save our seat. So yeah, that's so cool. So horseback riding, looking for um, a crawfish. Mm -hmm. uh, you were also listening to the stories. And I know from my own childhood, listening to my grandparents and my parents talk, just sitting in amazement, just listening and absorbing these stories. When I read your book, it brought me back because I could just, I could just picture, I guess this was probably in the, in the seventies. Um, most of your recollections are from the seventies. Yes. Uh, and I could just picture the people sitting around and this historic, I guess it's a pre-civil war home actually. Isn't mm -hmm. it? Mm -hmm. Yes. The house belonged to your great-grandfather, Judge Henry Pavi. That was his house. Mm -hmm. And there's a story in there that really intrigued me was some silverware that was found at the base of the old oak tree. Can you tell us about that? So this was just another story that we would tell. When we sat out for the midday meal, we would eat off, you know, Mari would pull out all the fine china. And we had this very heavy, big silver that we'd eat off of. And it had a W engraved in it. And I always thought it was for Weiss, but it wasn't because it was the other side of the family. And so they would say this, this silver is Wartel, is a, was a family name. But um, Mari told us that the silver was found under the tree right after the Civil War. So, But she called it the Silver War. So... <laughs> so we um yeah we ate off silver that was apparently found under the tree after the civil war because they had to hide their um valuables so that the um yeah the soldiers wouldn't wouldn't take the valuables wow and so you had this great history in this house and you you give some really great descriptions of the tall windows that really were needed to get any air in there i can only imagine Without air conditioning in Louisiana, even it's at Easter time, I guess it would st start to warm up then. But the way you described it, you really you bring you brought the reader into the house and what it was like and the chattering and the stories and there's an endless number of people to interact with and farm animals. I understand some of the farm animals, uh, the horses, etc., really didn't get a lot of action until you were down there, right? Right. For yeah, they would they knew we were coming every year and they would have to work harder and harder that week than any other part of the year because they had to entertain us. We had bunny rabbits that uh we you know we took care of for a week and we never knew where they went after we left, but we figured you know, I have a one one chapter about rabbit stew, it all became rabbit stew after we left. But I remember sitting on the front porch, uh, we'd open the floor, the, the windows would go from floor to ceiling and um, we'd sit on the front porch on a swing and listen to the, listen to the cicadas in the evenings. And, um, you know, I mean, there was no TV. There was a phonograph in the living room that we could listen to, you know, records on. And it was just really such a step back in time. 
there was a uh, medicine cabinet that we all used to kind of laugh about. Or we la- my mother would laugh about, and we kind of heard her laughing about. She'd say that the medicine cabinet um, was full of medicines from when my father was little. They never, they never, they oh, never no. threw them away. It was just like, you know. So it was just, it was, uh, it was an amazing step back in time. The bathrooms had heaters that we would light with a match. Um, the little built-in wall heaters, which I don't know what they're actually called, but that's how we would heat, take the take the chill off in the bathrooms. Well, what what could possibly go wrong there? What could possibly? Can you imagine? Yeah. So um, everything was very labor intensive. It was uh, it was the country. We called it the country. The house was referred yeah. to as the country. And what would happen at night? What kind of things did you do in the evening? Well, it's interesting because we we were so exhausted from all um, the day of running our horses with the soybean fields, taking care of our bunny rabbits. Um, there's a chapter about how we had to spend the week trying to keep the dachshunds from ch- killing our bunnies. Um, so in the evenings, we would come in from from whatever our, we did, you know, after after dark, and we'd eat a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and go to bed. Yeah. And what about your your mom and dad? What would I know from? discussing about your dad with your brother and sister and from this book that uh, your dad was a very active, adventurous person. What did he do when he was down there? You know, that's interesting because we were so engrossed in our activities that I'm not really even sure what he did. I think he probably went off and visited all his old friends and his old cousins and um, but we very had our very distinct kid things that we did. And, um, you know, my mother was kind of there to, you know, watch the kids. And that's what mothers did. You know, they made sure the kids were not getting into trouble. And my father kind of did what he pleased. He was, you know, um, he might have gone out uh, hunting every once in a while with his with his uh, old friends or old um, cousins and uh, people from the past. But he was, you know, he was kind of uh, he was there on his own agenda. <laughs> Got it. But you didn't care because you were, it was summer camp for you. It was like a fun summer camp. Yeah. It was a fun summer camp. It was, uh, yeah, the country. And now Aunt Marie, she got older. I I must admit, and I, I'm not just saying this, but you had me in tears uh, when she got older and she couldn't do it anymore. And it was very sad because I felt for you. I felt like that must've been a really tough time. What was that time for you like? Well, I was in, I was in college at that point, but I remember, um, and at some point, you know, when we were in college, we stopped all of us going down for Easter and we might've gone down when I finished college and was heading, I was driving West to go move to Colorado. I stopped in Opelousas, just me to go visit my aunt Marie. So that's how we saw her that, you know, then we stopped going as a, as a family and we started um, visiting on our own. My brother went to medical school in New Orleans, so he was still a little more connected and he would go out and see, you know, my Aunt Marie on um, on his holidays and breaks. So that's what going to see Marie became like. But we all talked about what is this, what's going to happen when Aunt, when Aunt Marie is no longer here? What's going to happen to Opelousas? What's going to happen to the country? So we referred to the house in Opelousas as Opelousas or the country. And so we all lamented what is going to happen. And at one point, right after Marie passed, I talked about bringing the house. Um, my father said, you know, you get you, you get the house to Colorado and you can have it. It's yours. And I really wanted to recreate it here, but I realized that it was not a mountain home and it could not exist. And that was kind of one of the things we talked about is that Opelousas could not exist without Aunt Marie. And so when she died, we we knew that it was over. And that was really hard. It was really hard. 
Um, Cause she was, yeah. part of my, one of my book, I think I talked about how Opelousas, the country couldn't exist without her. Yeah. I, I felt it. I felt it in the book and I know, I know what you're talking about. Now there is a phenomenon that maybe you can, maybe you can support me on this, but I remember when my dad, when my grandfather, my you know, other, my mom passed away, people would say to me, oh, the memories are going to carry you forward. You're going to, you know, you'll have those memories. I, said, I don't want memories. I want them. But as time has gone on, and I remember stories, and I tell the stories to my children, my grandchildren now, they are a big comfort, aren't they? They are. And I think that's part of writing this book was that I had to get this stuff down on paper and it took me so long and I forgot some of them. This book is really a culmination of my stories. These were the ones I remember. There's not a lot, you know, it's not, it's not an autobiography by any means. It's snippets of things that I remember. You know, I remember when, you know, the, the rabbit was killed. I remember shearing the sheep. I remember, you know, my Aunt Marie going to football games and they're very, um, nothing is chronological, not nothing, but it's mostly not chronological. It's just memories of these people and how colorful they are or were. And I just wanted to get it down on paper so that I could remember it. And, you know, a lot of people ask me, why aren't you promoting your book? Why aren't you out, you know, selling it? And it's like, I wrote it and they're here and they're all written down and I can, um, I've read this book probably five, six, seven times because I just, I, I love hearing the stories. And even in my own head, I can hear the stories, you know, I can read it to myself. But I, I almost, after having put them down on paper, I felt like I'd done my job and um, it was almost enough. I so. know what you're saying, because when I read it too, I thought to myself, these are memoirs. These are your, your memories. Now, the whole point of our podcast, Your History, Your Story, is to talk about stories, the importance of stories, particularly family trees or events that happen in our own lives that we remember and we tell because uh, stories are so important. So I just loved the book, even though it was your story. I just love the childhood memory part of it because it makes me think of mine and some of those lazy summer days when we didn't know what to do with ourselves and we made up games or, or sometimes my family would take it at Easter time. We'd take a history trip somewhere and just those, the things we saw and the stories, my father or mother would tell me about where we were going and all that. So your book sort of prompted me to remember things, but it also, I learned a lot from your book because I don't, I'm, I'm from New Jersey. I, don't know anything about Louisiana. I know you're not from Louisiana either. You're a New Yorker, but you had, yeah, you had this immersion into the Louisiana culture with family members who were also immersed in that culture. And you were able to eat with them and hear their stories and play on the farm and just interact with the people in the neighboring areas. How cool is that? I'm so glad you you wrote this down. So would you say, Gretchen, that this book was uh, therapeutic for you? I know you said it was written over 20 years, but actually putting it into a book and getting it published, was that therapeutic for you? At Very all? much. Because I've always wanted to, you know, I'm an English teacher, so I always wanted to write. I always wanted to be an author. It was like a dream come true. And, you know, while, while doing this, I actually have a cousin, my cousin Yvonne, who um, 
made a documentary and the documentary was 61 bullets and she is amazingly talented she works on the set of yellowstone and so she put together this whole documentary 61 bullets and so she also felt this incredible drive to put this into a film so that people could see the other side of the story. Now, our, her documentary and my book are completely different because hers is more telling the story of what happened to the family directly after um, the event. And it's an amazing documentary, 61 Bullets. But um, what I did after um, about six years ago, five or six years ago, I decided that I needed to take my kids to Louisiana so that they could see what this was all about. And they were really young, but this reminds me of the documentary because um, Yvonne went to the Capitol one day and she filmed this historian taking a bunch of school kids through the Capitol. And she says, now kids, this is where he shot him. And she's telling the story, obviously, the way the history books tell it, that my grandfather shot him. And I remember hearing her voice and she's pointing at it. And so when I brought my children to um, the Capitol, the tour guide, I introduced myself as being the granddaughter of Huey Long's assassin. And uh, she was not impressed, I think, probably because she hadn't grasped who I was or what this meant. She was so used to doing her speech but I don't think she was used to seeing the actual uh, people involved in history standing in front of her. So, or, you know, the offspring of the people uh, involved in history standing in front of her. But it was so amazing for me to hear this same voice from the documentary, 61 Bullets. Now I'm standing in front of her and she's telling the same story and I'm there. I'm like, hello. But um, we went around Opelousas. We went um, to New Orleans and at one point I was eating um, down on Bourbon Street in a little um, kind of a uh, little cafe. And one of the uh, waiters said, so what brings you to, to New Orleans? And I said, well, I'm showing my children the place where my family grew up and where my family has a lot of history. I said, you know, my grandfather was accused of assassinating Huey Long. And he looked at me and he closed the doors of the cafe and kind of sequestered me in and said, he didn't do it, did he? And I said, no, no, he didn't. But um, he just, nobody can imagine that this is, you know, I'm the product of this, you know, story, this history. So um, it was very interesting to kind of be, um, you know, we went over the Huey Long Bridge and we did all the things and Huey Long is in the museums and he's everywhere. And, uh, you know, my kids were really young, but I just wanted them to kind of see what this piece of history looked like. You know, after I interviewed you and your, your brother and sister, I read, and, I, and forgive me, I can't remember the, which author it was, but I, I read a sizable biography on Huey Long. But I also watched your cousin's documentary, 61 Bullets. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> I also watched Unsolved Mysteries had a episode, which I believe you were present. For. We were in, we were down there for visiting. Um, we were there for, you know, in Opelousas for one's, um, one's spring break. And so they used us as extras. <laughs> and I remember all the people in the, in the Unsolved Mysteries going, that's the family of the assassin. <laughs> it was really, really interesting. Oh, I bet. Now, to me, from what I've heard, it sounds very compelling that your grandfather was not the assassin. But people have other opinions they can take from it. This was a very personal work for you, this book. But what do you hope a reader would glean from reading it? Somebody else who doesn't know your family, doesn't know you. 
I guess to me, it's really the characters in this book. You know, I always thought that this was going to be a major motion picture and I uh, I was going to have um, uh, someone play me. I'm not sure who, but I just thought it was such an interesting story. And it's kind of like a um, Glass Castle by Jeanette Walls is one of my favorite books. And when I, when I read Glass Castle and when I saw the movie, I thought, wow, like I really have a story to tell and I really need to finish this. Because as I said, I started it so many years ago, but I really kickstarted myself in the last three years to get it done because um, I wanted to get it done before my father died. And he had an early copy in the nursing home when he died. And it was one of like two things he had with him. But I really wanted, um, my father loved to be the center of attention. And so I really wanted to write his story, but I also wanted people to know about my Aunt Mari and my, and the characters because they were so amazing and they were so unique and you know, my cousins, uh, the five boys and my aunt Ida and countless others, you know, we had a family reunion probably that it was probably 30 years ago. I was, uh, 40 years ago, I was 16 and there were hundreds of people who I was related to and they were just, it was just a really unusual, um, family. It was very, um, it was a unique time and a unique family. And uh, whenever um, people from Louisiana come, I tell them about my book, my book, they, um, a lot of people have read it and gone, oh, okay, it's interesting to see the other side. Because the Long family was um, a very prominent political family. And so they had a lot of notoriety. We were just kind of, you know, we got the other side of the stick, so to speak. Now, you mentioned in your book that you went back there, I think, with your sister and your dad and your dad went to a symposium. Mm-hmm. And I've actually, I've actually listened, uh, watched on YouTube excerpts. Your father presented at a symposium about Huey Long and the assassination, about his knowledge of and his thoughts about the assassination and his his father's role in it. And he just spoke without any notes, and he just stood there and he got a a large applause after that. And both, I think from both sides, there was the, the Huey Long family was there mm-hmm. and uh, his family was there and other people um, were there. But I think the applause, even if you didn't agree with him was that's what right. a wonderful job he did. That's right. And I think that's what they, um, a lot of people said that one of the Long family members said, you know, whatever your belief is, you got to, got to hand it to him. He stood up there and he defended his father. And uh, yeah, it brought us all kind of to tears. But uh, one of the interesting things about that trip is that my sister and I went, um, we went to kind of support our dad. We both flew in to Baton Rouge and I had never flown into the Baton Rouge airport. We'd only flown flown into New Orleans. And so my sister and I are meeting up in Baton Rouge and walking through the airport and there were displays. There was a display of the Huey Long shooting. And one of them was pictures of our grandfather in a, you know, a really compromised shot. He'd just been you know, shot 61 times. And my sister and I both looked at each other and we were like, is this for real? This is so surreal that we're both standing here in this airport. There's her grandfather in this, you know, glass case. And it was just kind of one of the things that made us realize what a big part of history that that was and how that was not what it was like for us in our lives, because for us, we were so removed from it. But my cousins who grew up in Louisiana, it was, you know, it was pretty big deal that they were, there were reminders everywhere. Yeah. And the thing is, it's uh, the fact is that this tragic event 
in a sort of a roundabout history way, like we talked about in the beginning of this interview, one thing led to another. And had that not happened, you know, your your dad most likely would have grown up in that town, mm -hmm. uh, he would have been part of the scenery there. Maybe he wouldn't have had that, as you said, prodigal son coming back, this this boy who had every everything against him as a little boy. And, you know, he, he would have grown up there. Maybe, you know, he wouldn't have met your mother. So you really wouldn't even have. Uh, <laughs> I would not have existed. You wouldn't have existed, but he probably would have, maybe he would have been a doctor. He would have grown up in that town. You don't know what kind of life he would have had, but certainly you would not have been who you are from New York coming on these amazing special vacations down to this enchanted place. With this enchanted place in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> and Aunt Marie, you wouldn't have uh, maybe experienced those vacations. So this book is wonderful, Gretchen. And I Thank thought you. maybe you could share a little excerpt from the book just to give us a little sample of your writing. So this is chapter four, and it's called Leaving Opelousas Behind. The highly publicized death of Carl Austin Weiss at age 29 was a tragedy that reverberated throughout the family for decades and left it shattered. Aunt Marie was just 23 and was in her first year as a history teacher. Yvonne was her oldest sister, and those fired shots in the courthouse left her a widow at age 27 with a three-month-old baby, my father, to care for alone. In the confusion of the night of September 8, 1935, when shots rang out in the courthouse and Carl Austin Weiss was named the hitman, Yvonne had no choice but to accept the verdict and move on. Her dead husband was so vilified throughout Louisiana and the country that she packed up her belongings and set out for Europe, where she felt the climate for herself and her infant son would be safer. Marie was left at home, where she had to defend her brother-in-law to the masses and hold her name and head high, for in the South, a name means everything. My husband is fascinated by the South for many reasons. He tells the story of my family's plunge to infamy to anyone who will listen, and he loves an audience while I save it for those for whom it has some relevance, who have a sense of history and the importance that the event holds. Many have said that Huey Long would have run for president against FDR had he not been killed. I have learned that there are certain people who will be fascinated by the telling of it and those who will not understand the relevance of it and will have no idea why I am telling the story of a murder and a dead man. There are fewer and fewer people today who will remember the story as happens when time marches on and those who lived during those times in history have faded away. The stories disappear to make way for new ones. Now I rely solely on those from Louisiana and those who know history to be a willing audience. Robert, a history professor at the college where I work, just happened to be sitting in the adjunct office where I was preparing a lesson for my students during my absence. My absence was a long weekend to Louisiana for the 75th anniversary of the Huey Long shooting. Being a history teacher and well-versed in the event, Robert was equally amazed by the story and by my lot in life at that particular moment. It was this quizzical look that forced me to elaborate on the chain of events that brought me here to the spot today. As we talked, this historian prodded me to get writing. He felt I had a story to tell simply because of the chain of events, the death of a man I never knew, the father my father never met, and the places we arrive as a result of the actions of others. What if Huey Long had been president? I would not be writing this for my office as a writing instructor in Northern New Mexico. The events of our lives, whether they be noteworthy or not, 
have a profound effect on the offspring of others for generations to come. When I was planning to leave home and choose college, I fancied myself going back to Louisiana, a place filled with fond memories and family. My mother was a proud New Yorker and not as much a fan of the South. Perhaps it was the killing of the father-in-law and ensuing cover-up of a man she never knew and the scar it left on the family that gave her a distaste for the South. When one's name was synonymous with a political killing, the small town doctor's family was bound to lose. And lose they did. There were jobs lost when the family name of Pavi was involved. A judgeship was annulled. A school principal was demoted. A young teacher lost her job. That young teacher was my Aunt Marie. Perhaps no one was more affected by the death of that young man than Aunt Marie. She watched the heartbreak of her mama and papa, Judge Pavi and his wife, Ida Vizet, who wed in 1896. Aunt Marie, ever the sensitive one, struggled to watch the heartbreak of Yvonne, her older sister, dashed by the politics of their elders, caught in the crosshairs. The heat of the moment when guns were fired altered the lives of so many and for so long. The shroud that fell on the family name was hard for Aunt Marie to shoulder. So the year that she was fired as a history teacher because of her name was the year that the family fell apart and the depths of infamy caused an irreparable wound for the once great family. When Aunt Marie, Marie's brother-in-law was riddled with bullets by Huey Long's overzealous bodyguards, a family was stopped in its tracks. As Senator Long lay dying, the husband of my Aunt Marie's revered older sister was implicated in the highly publicized death. The radio proclaimed a young doctor as the assassin. Many say he was named before he was positively identified. Needless to say, the world known to the Pavi family was interrupted forever. Marie Aline Pavi, my great aunt Marie, and the matriarch of a large Southern family that reveled in its Acadian heritage, suffered a severe setback. A school that had been named in honor of a caring and charismatic uncle, a champion in education, was suddenly renamed so as not to reflect a name that had become synonymous with the high-profile political assassination. Her father, the judge, as he was called even years after his death, who was at the helm of the St. Landry Parish Court system for 20 years, was dethroned. Marie Aline Pavi, sister to the alleged assassin's wife, in her second year as a teacher of Louisiana history, was suddenly forced to leave her classroom, fired for her family name. At the family homestead where she proudly announced her name, Miss Pavi, she was now an outcast. And her favorite sister and baby nephew were exiled. Maybe it was this dark event in history that gave the family such strength of character. Perhaps the event was the impetus for this family to become a tight-knit circle of protectors. When the shroud of villainy lifted some years later, they had not only survived such blight on the family name, but they were stronger for it. And Marie was reinstated as a teacher and taught Louisiana history to decades of students. Such was the turbulent world of Miss Marie, a Southern matriarch whose roots in St. Landry Parish were as deep as those of the centuries-old tree encircling her home. And I call this book Under the Oak Tree because this oak tree was where so many of our family gatherings happened. And it was where the biggest event of the week, the Easter egg hunt, always took place. So the oak tree was like another member of the family. And um, it, there was never any question of what I would call the book, Under the Oak Tree. Well titled and well written. Gretchen, it was beautiful. And that 
chapter says so much, but the, the rest of the book is just filled with memories and, uh, and put them all together into this book that flows so nicely and just transports the reader to another place. But it takes such an interesting cut at it because these are the observations of a New Yorker in a very different area, but feeling this immense amount of love, particularly from your great Aunt Marie. And uh, it's just a wonderful read. So Gretchen, do you have any other projects on your planning board as far as writing? So this was such a, this was a very, uh, you know, finally getting this finished was really a big deal. But I do, um, I am writing another book and it's about living as a a sled dog musher in uh, Colorado, which is a great departure from my growing up as a, a Long Island girl shopping at the Roosevelt Mall. So um, it's called Guides and Dogs, and it's about all of the people who have come into our lives as guides while we, my husband and I have pursued this crazy business of dog mushing. Yes. I want to thank you for being a guest on our show again and for sharing stories about your family that has had so much to do with history, but I just love the fact that you were willing to share this very personal memoir. Thank you very much. Thank you for taking an interest in it. Absolutely. And I wish you the best on your next book. But thank you again, Gretchen. And I hope you have a great day. Thank you, James. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Your History, Your Story. You can connect with us on Facebook and YouTube at Your History, Your Story, or on Instagram and Twitter at YHYS Podcast. We'd love to hear from you if you have any questions, comments, or a story to tell. Be well and God bless.